0: Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman.
1: Ada Lamone is the author of five books of poetry, including Bright Dead Things, which was named a finalist for the 2015 National Book Award in Poetry a finalist for the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, a finalist for the 2016 National Book Critics Circle Award, and one of the top ten poetry books of the year by the New York Times. She earned an MFA from New York University and is the recipient of fellowships from the New York Foundation for the Arts, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, and the Kentucky Foundation for Women. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including The New Yorker, The Harvard Review, and Barrow Street. Lamone is on the faculty of the Queens University of Charlotte, North Carolina Low Residency MFA program and the 24 Pearl Street online program for the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center. She splits her time between Kentucky, California, and New York. Mm
0: -hmm. Still in New New York. York A little
1: in New York. She also works as a freelance writer in Lexington. Her new collection, The Caring, which is on the table between us uh, in hardback for the first time, just uh, she's gotten a copy of it, but it will be released uh, in just the next few days. Mm-hmm. We hope
0: the 14th in four days.
1: Uh, and this from Publishers Weekly, uh, giving uh, complete uh, poetic license uh, uh, to to their uh, writing of her in in a piece they did uh, some time ago. And this has to do with uh, bright dead things, but I thought it was appropriate because it does mention again her Kentuckiness. In her 2015 collection, Bright Dead Things, a National Book Award finalist for poetry, Ada Lamone writes of moving to Kentucky, Confession, I did not want to move, to live there. It's perhaps not a surprising sentiment coming from a coastally oriented person who was raised in Northern California, attended college in Seattle, and then spent over a decade in New York City. But Lamone and her husband Lucas have been in Lexington for seven years now, and the effects of settling into this place are noticeable in her new book, The Caring. It's a phenomenally lively and attentive collection, replete with the trappings of living a little closer to nature. While Bright Dead Things is marked by a preponderance of light, such as images of fireflies and neon signs, The Caring features numerous appearances by various trees, birds, and beetles. Lamone also demonstrates a greater willingness to be explicit in naming colors, particularly green. It's crazy green, the whole book, she says. Lexington is the greenest place I've ever lived. Similarly, where in Bright Dead Things, Lamone tells a lot of stories and anecdotes, the caring, she is very present in her thoughts and experiences. What a nice, gentle review that was.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah, he did such a wonderful job. We sat down and met uh, met in New York City for uh, a lunch.
1: So welcome to uh, Think Humanities podcast. It's such an honor to have you here. And it must uh, be with great anticipation that you uh, have this book. Uh, after how many years of, of writing and collecting and putting it together?
0: Um. First of all, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Um, Let's see, I think, you know, this is my fifth book. Bright Dead Things came out in 2015. Um, And so I think that this probably took place over the last three to four years of writing it.
1: And I uh, have heard you explain that you don't really sit down to write a poetry book you you tell me about the process.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think poets really inherently don't write books, we write poems. Um, it's one poem at a time. And as much as we try sometimes to think conceptually about putting together a manuscript or a project, really it comes down to one poem, one poem, one poem.
1: And those poems are written at all times of the day about uh, all emotion, all feeling, observation, what else?
0: Yeah, I think that poetry for me always answers the question as to where do I put all this? (laughs) And I think that all of us have that sort of swirling around within us, the many questions of the day, the many observations, the many emotional uh, journeys that you're going through just minute by minute. Um, And I think uh, poetry really is the place where I go to process those things and to work things out. Um, the nice thing for me about poetry is that it's not a place for answers, really. Um, you don't have to have wisdom when you go to the page. It's a place for questions.
1: How different is The Caring, your new work, than what you've done before?
0: Um, I think my work started to shift with the book Bright Dead Things that came out in 2015. Um, and. It, In that sense, I think that I was just more aware of writing my own personal experience and maybe blurring the line a little bit more between the speaker and um, the poet so that the poems tended to take on a more autobiographical form. Um, This book, The Carrying, I am a little fearful and anxious about, at the same time very proud of, but it is, I think, maybe my most personal book. I think that it's always a little bit strange when we conflate the author and the poet, uh, the author and the speaker, um, with autobiographical information. But this book is very truthfully autobiographical.
1: Do you find that most poetry, um, most poets, are at their best when they are revealing themselves?
0: I think that it's different for every poet. Um, I think some poets are really gifted at um, the pure lyricism of a line. And some poets are really gifted at making the image stand for everything. Um, And I think that those things are very important to me as well, but I also like a story. Um, And so I think for me, the story uh, and how it unravels, it makes for an interesting poem, you know? But um, but in terms of what I look for in other people's work, oh, it's all over the place,
1: yeah. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the specifics in, in, your, in your new book in a moment. But let's go back um, and let me talk to you about um, when you first began to write and um, how active you were involved at that time. Were, were you writing? And when you were working on your MFA, is that what you you went to do your MFA in, your genre? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I started taking writing seriously when I was a uh, junior in undergraduate at uh, University of Washington. Um, And then I met with my advanced poetry teacher in my senior year, and she asked me what I was going to do. And I said I was going to apply for graduate school in theater because I was an actor. I was a drama major. And um, performing was really what I thought I would set out to do. She looked at me and she said, you know, I think that you should apply for your MFA in poetry, in creative writing. And she was the first person to really push me in that direction. So I gave it a shot. I didn't think I would really have that, if I knew if I had the talent or the skill or the patience even for the written word. Um, But I knew that it was incredibly important to me and that it had shifted my being during those last two years of of college. Um, And so I took a year off uh, in between college and applying for graduate school and in that time wrote poems and wrote poems and read and read and read and then I applied and actually got into NYU where um, I had was my sort of dream school because so many of the people I admired were, were working and teaching there. And so I moved to New York, sight unseen. I had never been there. I had a, a bag and a one-way ticket and um, moved to New York City. I thought I would be there for two years, getting my MFA, and uh, ended up being there for almost 12.
1: Fascinating story. New York probably does not want for material uh, for a poet or a writer of, of any sort. Do, do so, so did that... Did that feed what you were doing? Were, were you doing a lot of writing at that time about the city?
0: Uh, yeah, and the interesting thing was I was writing about the city and the experiences within the city because of its sort of giganticness, Um But also, there was a pull and nostalgia for my home um, and the small creek that I grew up across the street from. Um, and so those would seep into the work. And by fact, by the time I left, um, I had just finished my third book, Sharks and the Rivers, and that book is very much a book that deals with the encroaching feel of, sort of cement and the technical world um, along with this pull of the natural world and the river that runs underneath it all. Um, so those poems almost entirely have um, have river and fish in almost every single one of the poems, which is interesting um, for a book that was written in Brooklyn.
1: Do you remember the moment when, whether it was Lucas or not, your husband said, let's go to Kentucky? hmm
0: I do. I, um, in 2010, I had decided to leave New York, uh, quit my job and try to write full time. Um, and I, uh, moved to California, my hometown, I moved to Sonoma. Um, and I had just started dating Lucas before I left New York. And I remember thinking, oh, this is just my luck, right? Falling in love with this guy right when I'm leaving. And then he said, you know, I'm going to leave New York, too. I'm gonna, but I'm going to go to Lexington, Kentucky, because he's in the horse racing industry. Um, and so I kind of thought, well, I'll convince him at some point to move out to California. Uh, and lo and behold, he won, and we moved to Lexington. Um, And yeah, it was never a place I really imagined myself. Um, I always laugh that, um, you know, I grew up in California and then spent my, uh, you know, young adult years in New York City. And this is my first time living in America. (laughs) And um, I think that uh, Kentucky has been really good for me in so many ways. Um, And one of the things is really that it gave me a chance to connect to the natural world in a way that you don't really get when you're living in in a a massive city like New York. Um, It was hard to give up California, but I go there a lot still and um, still think of it as home. But Kentucky has really been my home base, and I feel really at peace here in a way that um, I didn't when I was living in New York City, and it has given me space and breath and time.
1: We're glad that you're here. Thank you. I'm always curious to talk with people about what they think of Kentucky and their first impressions because, unfortunately, there are all still so many stories uh, that are misplaced and stereotyped. And there is a a funny story that Belle Hooks told me one time. Uh, Belle Hooks, uh, born and raised in Hopkinsville and then went off and didn't come back for decades and decades. And she was in New York with one of her best friends, Gloria Steinem, and said, announced one evening, I'm going back home to Kentucky. And Gloria Steinem said, what in the world for? You haven't left anything there. Uh, It it was not a a good place for you when you were growing up. But of course, Belle um, came for uh, a year's residency at Berea, and she's been here now, gosh, I think it's been 10, 12 years or so I think she has no uh, thoughts at all of, uh, of leaving so there's something about the Commonwealth that that you are attracted to too I love the fact that you you talked about the color mm-hmm. which sometimes we Kentuckians lifelong natives don't see
0: yeah I think that you know I read somewhere that green is the most creative color and I feel like it's a good place to write in that all that green um, yeah i was sort of amazed i think that i didn't realize that kentucky was so beautiful just the physical beauty of it is really astounding and that's something that i think people don't understand uh when i brought my mother here for the first time she's you know from born and raised in southern california now lives in northern california and has since the 1970s um and northern california is really one of the you know prettiest places on the planet but she gets off the plane and she says, "Look at all this green." And she goes, "I guess these are all golf courses," because she forgets about the rain, right? And I said, "No, mom, that's just the grass. That's just—it's not a golf course. That's just how it grows." And she's looking around, going, "Wait, it's just green like this, just naturally." And I was like, "Yeah," and she was sort of in awe, and it felt like a sort of a proud moment where she was sort of blown away by Kentucky's beauty. And it's been a joy to to give that to other people who may. Had misconceptions about the state.
1: Your writing, you said, um, is has changed. Has it? Would you say just because you're uh, you're wiser, you're you're uh, more confident, uh, you're successful? Um, is your work more mature? Are you? Do you feel? the same uh, pull, or is it angst that you can write about horses or American pharaoh, or do you also feel like as a poet you need to be involved in the world, that, that a poet's place is to be a social commentator, that you need to be on call to to make a statement, whether it's about feminism or Charlottesville or... Whatever it happens to be, can can you do those? Can you do both of those things in your mind and 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 do them to your satisfaction?
0: Yeah, I mean, do I do anything to my satisfaction? <laughs> you know, do any of us? I don't know. Um, I don't think it's any sort of wisdom that I come to the page with now, but I do think what it is is that idea of capacity, the idea that. Um, I am at peace now with the concept that we can both grieve large things um, and talk about suffering and activism and make actionable change, while at the same time grieve small things or take pleasure in small things. And I think that we do a disservice to the human animal when we pretend that it's one thing or the other, that we can only feel one thing at one time. The great thing about poetry is that it makes room for all those things at once.
1: Why are you a poet?
0: Hmm. I think I've always been interested in the idea of writing letters into the universe, (laughs) Um, even as a small child. The idea of sending something out That it might bounce back somehow. Um, And I feel like I'm still doing that. That it's not always necessarily a reader that I'm writing to, though sometimes it is. Sometimes it's myself, and sometimes it's the ether. But I think sending out things into the world, the idea of creation, um, and the idea of attempting to offer something to the world is... What makes me tick?
1: Do you feel that you want to share that with with others? Is that part of it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think at its most basic form, poetry is communication. You know, I think that it is something that you give to someone else and that hopefully they can come to and see themselves within it. One of the reasons that I love poetry as an art form the most is that it's one of the only art forms that has breath built into it. Because of the line breaks and because of the stanza breaks, it actually holds breath. And it gives the reader breath when they're reading it. They have to pace it with those line breaks and with the stanza. And so, you're not just giving them the words, but you're also offering silence. And how much do we need silence these days? Everything is so loud and coming at us so fast, so massive. It's like we're being hit by a freight train daily, uh, if not, you know, uh, by the minute. Um, So to have space and time and allow for silence on the page, that to me is such an offering for someone. Um, It's the gift that I get when I read other people's poems, that I get to spend time in that space in the page, not just the words, but the space.
1: If you would, uh, give me a a one-or-two-minute how-to-write-a-poem lesson. (laughs) Because uh, some poets never deviate from one form, Mm -hmm. uh, or it takes them a while to do that. uh, And I don't know how long you've been doing that with all of your other work. Mm -hmm. You seem to be as much at ease with... With stanzas and and line breaks, as you do with the uh, would it be proper to say the lyric narrative mm-hmm. uh, so how do you, how do you determine in your own mind sitting down to write that you've just observed something and that you want you want it to be a you want it to look a certain way you want it to sound and feel a certain way? how do you decide that
0: yeah I think um, you know it's a, it's a large question that you ask, but I think sort of the simplest answer is that. You know, each poem comes to you a different way. Um, some poems begin with an image. There's something that you see that you can't shake, you know, or you're seeing it right then, and you're like, oh, I want to write about that. Um, or sometimes there's something moving within you over days or over weeks or over months that's troubling the waters of the soul, and you think, okay, I really need to plunge within this and get at it. Um, And sometimes those two things combine, the image and the things that are troubling you, and they sort of collide, right? And suddenly you think, oh, now it's time. Um, And now in terms of how it exists in the page, then you have to think about pacing because it's all about mute the musicality. So when I want someone to read quickly so that if I offer you the poem and I want the pacing to be fast, then if I want it to be really fast, I want it to be a prose poem. I want it to read like this so that it never stops and it goes like this. It's just a talky poem. Blah, 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 right? That's a prose poem. Now, if the line, if I want it to be quiet, if I want it to move slowly, then it's a a short line break. Think Emily Dickinson, right? So then it's like, this is the poem and how it goes, right? So you want the very short, short. And then if I want it to be mid-length, that's more of a dialogue. Oftentimes that's like maybe a love poem. They're in couplets. That's sort of the the, the pacing that's more like natural speech so it really the line breaks will determine the silence the speed the pacing and the musicality and at the end of the day hopefully what you can do is give that poem to someone who's maybe never read it and they can read it exactly how you intended it with those musicality and spacing and breath within it
1: that's 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 wonderful mm-hmm. i mean that, that's that that's uh I don't know if I've ever uh, asked that question before, but that, that's just the perfect answer. Oh, thank you. Um, does Lucas, your husband, like your or love your love poems?
0: You know, uh, he, I once asked him, I said, is it uncomfortable for you when I read the love poems that are reading <laughs> and you're in the audience? And because um, he's often in the audience, he, you know, he yeah. comes with me when he can. And uh, um, he said, no, they're always so nice. <laughs> That's sweet. He, I think he loves the love poems. Um, uh, you know, I, I think he also likes it when there's complicated things too because I think he he trusts me to delve into some of our complex history or my complex history, and I think he feels like he can give that to me. You know, he has given me permission to write about whatever I want in our lives, and that's a great gift because not everyone wants to give that kind of mm-hmm. permission. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: out of the new publication, uh, *The Caring*, uh, which you have with you, uh, would you like to select uh, one or two that you would like to read?
0: Sure. Um, you mentioned one of the love poems, so maybe yeah. I should read one of those.
1: That that that's uh, Lucas would appreciate that, <laughs> and, and we well, all would too. Yeah.
0: And we need we need love poems in the world. You know, it feels like at a time when um, you know we're, we're so sort of full of uh, the barrage of sorrow you know that's handed to us and um, we still have to appreciate one another and love one another and love poems don't always have to just be for your partner you know they can always be for um, your animals your uh, your garden your sister, your brother, your dear friends. We of don't course. write enough love poems to our best friends yeah. who are there for us through so much, mm-hmm. you know? So I am i say more love poems all around. This poem is um, a poem that uh, I wrote once. Uh, it was, it's a more recent poem. Um, you know, I go out and, and tour and give readings. I go, speak at colleges or universities and... Um, Lucas is always commenting, you know, oh you know you look so beautiful up there, you know you look great." And then I come home and I kind of sort of turn into this the, the messy writer, the sort of you know, my hair is pulled up awkwardly, I'm sort of wandering the house in a spacey zone because I'm thinking about a poem or because I've read something wonderful in someone's new book of poems and I'm contemplating it and um, and so uh, this the first line was something I actually said. Um, and This is called Love Poem with apologies for my appearance. Sometimes I think you get the worst of me. The much-loved loose forest green sweatpants, the long brawless days, hair knotted and uncivilized, a shadowed brow where the devilish thoughts do their hoofed dance on the brain. I'd like to say this means I love you. The stained white cotton t-shirt, the tears, pistachio shells the mess of orange peels on my desk but it's different than that I move in this house with you the way I move in my mind unencumbered by beauty's cage I do like I do in the tall grass more animal me than much else I'm wrong it is that I love you but it's more that when you say it back lights out a cold wind through curtains. For maybe the first time in my life, I believe it.
1: It's a very, very nice. Thank you. Yeah, very. Again, very sweet. Mm-hmm. Do you have an example uh, in uh, uh, of a, a narrative, um, a prose poem mm-hmm. that you can do a little bit with? Uh, you, know, I, American Pharaoh is the one that um, that I ran across that I, I thought was was wonderful, but but if you have another one that you can yeah, choose, so just to, just as contrast for the listener to uh, to really understand uh, yeah, so some the of the difference.
0: American Pharaoh, it's not a prose poem, but it's, ah. um, it's a narrative lyric poem.
1: Uh, uh, okay, a narrative lyric. Yeah, so yeah.
0: Uh, American Pharaoh has um, line breaks. Now a prose poem, there are three of them, I think three or four in this uh-huh. book, um, and those go all the way to the end of the page. Yeah. So those look like a paragraph and oftentimes they're justified. Yeah. So those don't have line breaks at all. Okay, good. Um, so they actually go really fast. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Maybe that's my PDF version that I have. Oh, yeah. No, <laughs> don't know. Yeah. Um,
0: so um, American Pharaoh. I feel like being in Kentucky, I don't need to really um, tell you what the poem is about because you know what it's about. <laughs> Although I will have to say when we copy edited the book, this kept coming back as being spelled wrong. Really. And I kept yeah. saying, no. That's yeah. how they spelled his name. <laughs> yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. yeah.
0: American Pharaoh. Despite the morning's gray static of rain, we drive to Churchill Downs at 6 a.m., eyes swollen shut with sleep. I say, Remember when I used to think everything was better, was getting better and better? Now I think it's just getting worse and worse. I know it's not what I'm supposed to say as we machine our way through the silent 70 minutes on 64 over potholes still oozing from the winter's wreckage. I'm tired. I've had vertigo for five months. And on my first day home, he's shaken me awake to see this horse not even race, but work. He gives me his jacket as we face the deluge from car to the twin spire turnstiles, and once deep in the fern-green grandstands, I see the crowd, a few hundred maybe, black umbrellas, cameras, and notepads, wet-winged, eager early birds, come to see this Kentucky-bred Bay colt with his chewed-off tail, trained to end the almost forty-year American Triple Crown drought. A man next to us, some horse-racing bigwig, hisses a list of reasons why this horse, His speed-heavy pedigree, muscle and bone recovery, etc., etc., could never win the grueling mile-and-a-half Belmont Stakes. Then the horse comes out, first just casually trotting with his lead horse, and all at once, a brief break in the storm, and he's racing against no one but himself and the official clockers, monstrously fast, and head down so we can see that faded star flash on his forehead like this is real gladness. As the horse eases up and all of us close our mouths to swallow, the big talking guy next to us folds his arms, says what I want to say too. I take it all back.
1: <laughs> yes, that, that's just so very nice and so Kentucky and... and um... I think you can feel the moment uh, what what you observed and what you felt. I think that's a good example of that you've um you're so a ad- uh, adroit at at answering every question that's been in, thrown at you. you you've done lots of interviews uh, online um, at a w p um, in magazines What is the one question you've never? been asked or a topic that you've never addressed that, that you want to
0: hmm. I don't know that's a big question um, I don't know you know the funny thing is is that I've done a lot of interviews and written a lot of poems about a lot of different things and um, so it's we've covered. I've covered a lot of ground because I've, when yourself tends to be. The place you go to mine, your content. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I feel like everything's fair game for me. So I've never. I've never really said no to a question. Um, I've always been open because I feel like, once I I've, I've put it out there into the world, right, that it's my. Not duty, but it's my responsibility, I think, to, you know, own the work. And um, that's important to me because I feel like accountability is something that, you know, we need to be aware of in our own work, that if I address the situation, address something in a poem, it's okay to have a conversation about it too. I have to be ready to have that conversation about it. And sometimes I think it takes a while for a poem, a book of poems to come out for me, and that's often because I'm waiting until I'm ready to have those conversations.
1: You need to know that um, it's so important that you are such an, a celebrated and honored Kentucky poet hmm. and that you have already demonstrated that you celebrate that, uh, that uh, this— this, uh, it's almost trite, uh, rich writing tradition uh, of, of Kentucky literature, uh, of writing that spans uh, generations. You're uh, a part of that now and, and you are at the top of that now and uh, it's, it's wonderful for other uh, readers and writers and just people who might be picking up that book for the very first time and reading poetry um, are, are, are honoring you in a, in a very special way. We're so glad that you're here in Kentucky.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Kentucky's been good to me, and I really consider it my dear home.
1: Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud.